You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Lots of great guests coming up on the show this evening. We have the return of resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley, who returned to Cork recently to try out a new restaurant called Zamora. I'm out and about and meet a master tea blender called Jörg Müller. Acclaimed food writer John McKenna sheds light on TTIP. And I pay a visit to Hook and Ladder Cookery School in Limerick City to meet up with Chef Keith Piggott. If you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie, or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. So let's get on with the show and invite resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley into the studio and find out what she thought about Zamora in Cork. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, you're welcome to the studio this evening. It's great to be here, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Tonight, we're going to Cork and to a restaurant called Zamora. Yes, sounds very exotic. It does indeed. doesn't give you any clue of what sort of cuisine it serves. None whatsoever. And I didn't really know anything about it until I got there. I just went on the basis of a lot of recommendations. Uh, people kept saying, have you been to this place called Zamora? Uh, and I was thinking, that doesn't sound uh, like anything I've heard before. So I had to make sure I, I went down there. It's just based off uh, Patrick Street, Academy Street. So so very central. Very Cork. central indeed. So if people are heading that direction to do a bit of Christmas shopping now that we're in November, be the perfect perfect place to go for. Is it open for lunch as well as dinner? It is. We actually visited for lunch uh, and we visited sort of at the very tail end of the summer in very late September. We got uh, probably about an hour and a half of sunshine, which was lovely. So we sat outside. Very nice. Unusual, yes. Uh, It's a pretty quiet street, Academy Street, despite obviously having the hectic crazy nature of Patrick Street only a couple of hundred yards away uh, and you sit opposite um, a lovely kind of pretty mosaic building so it's a nice little spot if you want a quiet cup of coffee away from the Christmas hustle and bustle. The fact that it was recommended to you by a number of people means that word of mouth has been great for them. Yes, uh, and surprisingly, because I mean they're only open not, not even quite a year yet, so they've kind of become firmly embedded in Cork's food culture, and that's a pretty busy culture and busy busy surroundings to be in. Exactly, mm-hmm. yes. So to make your mark is difficult, and fair play to them, they appear to have done so. Tell us a bit about the menu then to start off. The menu is um, it's served in that kind of typical hipster fashion on a block of wood um, and it's quite simple, quite straightforward. They they don't tend to go for sort of like starters, main courses, desserts. They just go for a mixture of different types of dishes. Uh, we went at lunchtime and lunchtime had, for example, sandwiches, wraps, salads, um, that kind of thing. And then also a couple of mains that would be more, more robust, I suppose. Whenever you say it was served... Or it was displayed on a block. Is it carved into a block? Or no, sorry, I should probably be clear about that. It was clipped, a piece of paper clipped onto a board, which is actually quite a good idea because you can very easily change it um, with the seasons and, and with the, the chef's changes to the menu. But it is still feels quite weighty in your hand. Okay, okay, a clipboard. Clipboard, yeah. Clipboard. Essentially, a very thick clipboard. <laughs> essentially, is what it is, Sharon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that is quite common now. You would see that quite You'd a lot. See them now. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with. Starters. We actually, because it was lunch, we said we wouldn't do the whole hog in it for once, and we shared a starter, uh, which turned out to be fairly, um, fairly generous. So it was good that we, we chose to split it. It was a tiny shrimp served in a sardine tin, again, uh, not to the hipster style, and uh, it was bathed in a garlic, chili, and herb butter, which we used, uh, which we dipped into with a uh, crostini. 
Very nice. Yeah, very, very tasty, very luscious dish. And for me and Sam? Uh, I actually chose uh, seared beef and I could smell it before it came. It smelled absolutely spectacular. That lovely sort of crisp on the outside and blackened, slightly blackened, and then on the inside, perfectly pink and medium cooked. It was fabulous. Uh, and just piled on top of a huge salad of mixed leaves, red onion, the sun-dried, sun-dried tomatoes, crispy roast potatoes, and uh, a creamy cashew blue cheese, which just made for a fabulous concoction. That sounds like a fantastic combination of flavours there. It was, and it was also quite simple. You know, the idea of just throwing in a few roast potatoes just to give it kind of a bit more weight was lovely. Uh, I like that kind of lack of pretension in food. Was your dining companion on this occasion Anthony? It was indeed, <laughs> yes. Uh, no better man for helping me eat and get through the menu. Uh, he chose lamb koftas, which will kind of give you an idea of the variety of the menu and, and the different types of ingredients that they had. Uh, it, it was served in a char grilled tortilla, which was quite a good idea. And instead of flatbread, it was just a tortilla that was essentially just char grilled. Uh, and alongside a beautiful Moroccan salad, really colourful. It had pomegranate seeds, roasted chickpeas and giant couscous. Uh, and then on the side, there was a lovely um, part of cooling tzatziki which was just just perfected the dish I would love that now because barbecue joes I don't know if you've ever come across them out and about at festivals and they would have done a lamb kofta with a mango salsa and I just loved it loved it if it's seasoned right it can make just the most deliciously Mm. light food you know it's it's perfect for being able to taste all the different flavors of the meat and being able to enjoy a sandwich without sort of being full and and uh too too bready i suppose we want a better word yeah that sounds delicious were you having a drink because it was lunchtime were you i didn't um anthony did uh again he'll he'll be up for trying all of it but he had a glass of a spanish white i should probably mention that the zamora is run partially as a wine shop um, it's run by a couple of wine merchants in Cork so a corner of it is dedicated entirely to wine which you can buy to eat in or to drink in should I say or you can buy to take out with you so they have quite a variety of, of, of wines to have by the glass which was which was nice and something a little bit different he had um, as I said a Spanish white it was a Herruzza uh, Chacolina if you will forgive me for I my pronunciation no <laughs> I can't help you I have no Spanish it doesn't even sound all that Spanish so I'm not even sure um, where it comes from but perhaps the next time I'm done I'll ask them for a bit more information it was 7.20 per glass which was a little bit steep but as of 2013 and a really nice uh, wine it was worth it in our opinion you forgave them then because it was worth it it was worth it exactly okay. yeah and um, I was driving so I had a glass of elderflower cordial which they make in house which oh, yeah, nice. something really interesting it was really really nice very refreshing uh, not too sweet it was perfect Mm. Eileen O'Sullivan at Black Hill Farm in Arda does a, a nice elderflower cordial. I'm saving it to go in the Prosecco on, on Christmas Day. That's a really good idea, mm. actually. That'd be perfect uh, kind of aperitif. Mm-hmm. Mm. But we digress. We do. Starters, our starters we've covered, mains we've covered. What about dessert? For dessert, again, we, we split it, just uh, thinking we wouldn't be able to roll home and go to bed. Uh, so we said we'd take it easy. We had a Valencian orange cake, which was something very different. We hadn't had it before, so you're used to having normally the pies and the chocolate cakes and the fudge cakes and all the rest of it. So it was nice to see something a little bit different, uh, and it tasted quite different as well. It was essentially sort of like a, a very moist sponge, uh, really heady, citrusy kind of flavours. Uh, reminded me of homemade marmalade, to be honest, uh, in that kind of like lovely nostalgic way. Um, and then it was sort of mellowed, where the sweetness is kind of cut with uh, fresh yogurt and a little bit of drizzled fresh honey. Very nice. Mm, very different and and not too filling. Which is fabulous. You've mentioned a couple of times about the hipster. Was the decor and the ambiance quite 
modern? Um, it was. I, I think they stopped short of going into the full-blown beards and check uh, t-shirts kind of brigade. They it's it's felt quite fresh. It whitewashed walls, uh, very simple bare bulbs strung from the ceiling. It it was fresh and. Um, and kind of inviting looking. So they had managed to keep that kind of coziness alongside being something that's a little bit uh, new and modern as well. They um, actually only opened, I said, in December, but they have still, I mean, they were packed out, to be honest. There were, that was on a Tuesday afternoon that we were there and very, very busy. So uh, I think the addition of warm bodies sitting down enjoying a glass of wine really helped to uh, kind of engage the convivial atmosphere there. So it's a very popular spot. Already, yeah, mm. it is indeed. And given that that was on a, said around half past two on a Tuesday afternoon, I, I can see good things for them in the future. Had you booked a table or were you just a walk-in? We were just a walk-in and we were the only Egypt sitting outside, so we were lucky. Okay. <laughs> Everyone else decided it was a little bit too cold, but we were hanging on uh, to the last vestiges of the summer. Do they take bookings? Because at this time of the year, when things are getting busy and people are going out a bit more, it might be as well to book in advance, would it? It could be, certainly for the evening. I don't think they, book, they take bookings for the lunchtime trade, uh, but certainly for the evening time, as it gets closer to Christmas, I would imagine they do. It might be worth giving them a quick call just to find out. Okay. If people want to review this review, <laughs> is it on your blog? It is. It's on uh, com. Fantastic. Rachel, thanks for coming in and sharing all the details about Zamora in Cork with us and we'll talk to you again next month. We will indeed. Thanks, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Rachel. And if you have a restaurant that you think Rachel should hot foot it to, please drop me an email with all the details, s.noonan at live.ie, and I'll pass the information on to her. Still to come tonight, acclaimed food writer John McKenna sheds light on TTIP, and I pay a visit to Hook and Ladder Cookery School in Limerick City to meet up with chef Keith Pickett. Next, though, I'm delighted to take you out and about in my travels when I came across a master tea blender called Jörg Müller. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. You have a very unusual range of teas here and I'm particularly interested in the ones that are to do with the chakras. What exactly are chakras? Well, chakras are your energy centers in your body. So my background is I'm a medical herbalist um, and we always wanted to blend a specific range um, that, that works on these energy centers. The business has been going for about seven years now. Have you found that a lot of people are moving away from coffee and towards tea and different types of tea? Yes and no. I mean, what I would say is happening at the moment is people are mixing and matching more. So it's not just coffee, but it's coffee and then a healthy tea in between. And um, obviously, the further you go into the afternoon, the more important, let's say, caffeine-free tea will become. And when we blend our teas, we we blend it similar to um, perfumes, where we look at base notes, mid notes and top notes, so to make them enjoyable as well. Well, let's talk about the different ones in the chakra range. Why have you come up with different ones? Well, obviously, as a medical herbalist, you have so many different varieties of, let's call them herbs or raw ingredients to work with. So as a background uh, with with um, a medical herbalist background, um, we first blended teas for specific health problems, but then this became problematic because of the, the regulation. 
and you couldn't put any kind of health claims on it. So basically, we knew we were going down the wellness lifestyle route. Um, for example, here we have a tea which is for the heart chakra, and obviously we call it with its mantra, I love. So in that tea, you would have ingredients like chamomile and lemon verbena and rose petals, lavender, so all very comforting, uplifting so we, we kind of partnered with this product range with a um, celebrity yoga kind of best-selling book author. So she was working on the chakras and we came up with the blend ingredients and the blends themselves. So I think it's a very exciting range. Um, nothing like that so far, to my knowledge anyway, does exist um, in, the, in the tea world uh, worldwide. So I'm quite proud to have launched these ones. Yeah, it's very, a very interesting range and very unusual. Um, I see the green tea here. I would be a bit of a green tea person. Is it true that it is very high in caffeine? Um, well, it depends on, on your own metabolism. It is certainly a lot lower than um, coffee in caffeine and it's... Um, it, it really depends how your body reacts to it. Um, but it is lower in caffeine than, for example, black tea, because what happens in the oxidization or fermentation process from a green tea plant to black tea is like the antioxidant content goes down, but the caffeine content goes up. So generally, green teas would be classed as non-fermented tea, so caffeine would be lower compared to black teas. And the one with the lowest caffeine content of all the tea plants is the white tea. Um, but obviously we have uh, herbal teas like the rooibos and like other herbal blends that are naturally caffeine-free. And you're mentioning the rooibos here and it has a great taste award, I see. Yeah, most of our products, in fact, uh, have great taste awards up to this point. So I think um, we uh, don't need to hide from anyone in Europe in terms of our product quality, yeah. How do you actually make tea or make the leaves? And like, where do you source the ingredients for them? Well, we work directly with tea plantations. So I generally travel. I have two times per year where I visit our kind of suppliers in China and India or Egypt for the herbal raw materials. And then it's a bit like cooking. Once you have the raw materials, you already know what works together you create that blend and then you might refine it slightly more but it is like a chef um, you're, you're basically adding or kind of um, changing recipes slightly but you know what tastes work well already in your in your mind when you kind of um, taste the individual raw materials and of course the taste can be affected by how it's made it's very important to make it correctly Yes, um, I think what is even more important is the quality in the first place of the tea because I come across a lot of people who say I don't like green tea um, and then I often give them a high-grade green tea to taste that doesn't have any of the bitterness or astringency and say, oh, that's lovely, what is that? So um, it, it, it is important to go for high, higher-grade um, raw materials if the health benefit is something you're after um, because we had our green tea analyzed versus a standard tea bag variety and we were blown away you would need to drink 27 cups of a standard dust and fanning green tea versus one of 
a whole leaf tea. So it's it's quite a difference. So yes, we're a little bit more um, expensive, but with whole leaf teas, you can reinfuse it two more times. So one tea bag makes three cups, so one spoon makes uh, three servings as well. So I think the more uh, knowledge consumer knowledge there is on tea you know and we can see it happening at the moment that premium tea or is in 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 its growth phase whereas the standard kind of um, tea is actually in decline some of them are in bags and some of them are loose is there any reason why you've decided to to make some one way and some the other well i mean our tea bags um, have the same quality of tea in them than the loose leaf tea it's a different tea bag it's a biodegradable silk tea bag which is um, made from cornstarch but it contains the same quality as loose leaf tea um, and yes um, because if you go to work you know it is conv- more convenient at home I'm a fan of loose leaf tea if you have the right tea accessories it's as quick as preparing it with tea bags but you know you might be traveling and it is convenient with tea bags you've won here I'd say it's nearly ready to taste tell me about yes. it this one is a green tea chai and yesterday we won the uh, tea category Q award for that one and I was uh, quite surprised I must say because um, let's say the other shortlisted finalists were all standard Irish breakfast teas so I wasn't sure would the judges you know go away from what obviously is tradition in this country but obviously you know tea is entering a new phase um, and I think people become more adventurous as well in their taste so I'm, I'm just giving you one here there is um, a subtle top note with the spices in there cardamom cinnamon star anise and a bit of clove and a very high grade green tea as a base and what you're tasting here is already now the third infusion of the same leaf um, so it's the third teapot with the same. It's quite soft. Yeah, it's very soft. Yeah, it's lovely. It's very refreshing. And I think it is, again, like similar to good food. We don't add any aromas into our teas. Um, and you can actually taste it that... Uh, it's very clean, it's very refreshing on the palate, whereas often when aromas are added, you have a very strong first taste, but it doesn't change, whereas with kind of spices added, you have an intermingling of more subtle flavors coming together, and I think that is where it should go. Um, but yeah, I'm not saying, you know, that uh, flavored tea, I think every person needs to make their own choice, but what we promote is making tea an experience, where you take a little bit of time and you see what is happening with your taste buds as well and how it feels. What is also important is once you've swallowed the tea see a minute or two after how it feels. Is it refreshing? Is it clean? Or do you almost have like a metallic aftertaste? And that often happens with flavors added. Yeah, I love this. I'm going to go away and enjoy it. Now, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM.
Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard earlier from resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley and just before the break I was out and about and met master tea blender Jörg Muller from Solaris Tea and would you believe I actually came across Jörg at the Food on the Edge Symposium in Galway last month and he brewed me up my very own personalised tea when I was there. So thank you so much for that Jörg, I really enjoyed that and apologies for the mispronunciation of your name during the interview. Never fear if you miss some of tonight's show as it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, I pay a visit to Hook and Ladder Cookery School in Limerick City to meet up with Chef Keith Piggott. Next, though, we're going to look at a very serious issue. You may have heard a lot of talk in the press recently about the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is usually shortened to TTIP. Well, what is it and how will it affect us here in Ireland? On the phone now is John McKenna of Guides.ie, who is an acclaimed food writer and a leading commentator in Irish food. Cheers. Chin chin. Salud. Schleiter. John, you're very welcome to the programme this Thank evening. You, Sharon. TTIP, in simple language, what exactly is it? It's the Transatlantic Trade and Investment uh, Partnership, which is uh, a planned agreement between the United States and uh, I think about 13 uh, European countries. Um, it's been in the pipeline for years. Um, it wasn't called the TTIP. Um, and I apologise for using all these horrible acronyms, but um, it's become the T- it's become known as a TTIP over the last several years as it's been negotiated by uh, teams from both sides. Uh, but in fact, you know, discussions about um, trade rules uh, have been going on um, between many countries in the developed world for many years, and in fact. I think it wouldn't be unfair to say about um, Barack Obama's presidency that in terms of trade, he has pivoted it on two main planks. One is the TTIP, which is an agreement with Europe. The second one is the uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, which was actually signed uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So I suppose from the point of view of the Obama administration, it's uh, one down and one to go. Whenever you say a partnership between the US and some countries in the EC, it, it all sounds like a very positive step. But in fact, you're opposed to it, as are a lot of other well-known food figures. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to trade by any means. Trade is, if you like, quite simply the thing that makes cuisine interesting. And it is food that has animated trade throughout uh, millennia. So I'm certainly not opposed to trade um, by any means, um, even though the reality of, of kind of modern trade is that you get um, small countries and, and monolithic blocks. But the reality is that the, the European Union, or certainly 13 members of the European Union, constitute a modern monolithic block. So it's not as if you have the United States negotiating with um, Ireland on its own, for example. Uh, you don't. So in that sense, Trade agreements, you know, ostensibly appear to be between equal partners. Um, my concern about the TTIP really stems from two two main issues. The first one, uh, and I have to put on my old uh, barrister's wig now to say this, is that the TTIP has a system 
of um, what's known as, I have to resort to another uh, acronym here, it's called the ISDS, or what's known as, what they call the Investor State Dispute Settlement, and what that is is quite simple. Um, let's say you're a company, or you're a, the reality, a very large company selling something into Ireland, and I'm an Irish legislator, and I don't really like what you're doing, so I change the law to stop you doing it. The reality is you can then, under the TTIP, you can sue me in front of a tribunal of three lawyers. Now, one of the key principles of any democracy is that we all have access to courts which are heard in plain sight. But in fact, these uh, ISDS tribunals uh, are not heard before judges, they're heard before lawyers. There is no right of appeal, and the hearings aren't in public. And we know already that uh, large companies have begun to use these mechanisms. Philip Morrison, for example, has been suing the Australian government because it says that their proposed uh, legislation on uh, cigarette packaging damages Philip Morris's uh, uh, ability to make profits. The second thing, I think, um, and this is probably more personal, but the reality of modern food production in the United States is that when we think of food production, we think of an agricultural and agrarian, and in some respects at the best level, is probably an artisan level of food production. But the United States food production is essentially industrial, uh, designed really to produce uh, a great deal of food based on corn, soy, and wheat uh, at very, very low cost. And I thought it was very telling when the, um, the uh, Asian uh, trade agreement was signed recently, that even in a liberal newspaper like the New York Times, they were filled with quotes from the guys from Big Ag, Big Pharma, Big Beef, Big Chicken, all saying, fantastic, the door is open, and now we can actually get our products across into these other countries, which if heretofore it hasn't been possible to do. And so when I spoke earlier on about saying that, you know, really a trading bloc like the European Union is a monolith, so it's trading on equal terms with uh, the United States, but the scale of the food manufacturing and processing companies uh, in the United States, that there is no equivalent to it uh, anywhere else in the world. And the reality is that the food that is produced by industrial standards in America is of exceptionally low quality. Uh, and for the most part, really is often contaminated with hormones, growth promoters. And I'm not sure if any people know that four out of every five antibiotics prescribed in the United States are actually consumed by farm animals. And I really don't want to eat that sort of food. That's startling. It is startling, uh, because when you think of uh, the prescription of antibiotics, we're all very, very wise nowadays to the, the, the dangers of overprescription. Uh, and, of course, the growth uh, antibiotics are not permitted within the European Union to, in, in terms of uh, animal... Well, to be honest, the animals are fed antibiotics in order as, as growth promoters. So I don't think people actually know, in fact, that, um, you know, this scale of realistically abuse of pharmaceuticals um, is actually a mainstay of uh, agricultural production in the United States. And I think the other issue that really concerns me, of course, is genetic modification. Now, whether you think genetic modification is a wonderful scientific development uh, or whether you think it isn't, the core issue is if you're going to consume something that has been uh, produced with genetically modified materials, you have a right to know. But of course, in the United States, 
the large companies uh, have been waging battle after battle in state after state against the people who say we need to be told it needs to be on the label if this uses genetically modified ingredients and the big companies are fighting this inch by inch in every state after every state well if they don't have anything to hide why don't they want to put it on the label so there's a a general sort of um, line that comes out of the pro-GM industry which is that there is an international consensus that genetically modified crops are completely safe I don't believe that. I think it's a propaganda line designed to, uh, you know, discredit people like myself who say, well, show me how safe it is. Uh, But the fact of the matter is um, acquiescence. I think if we sign a trade agreement that says, well, actually, it's okay to ship in uh, genetically modified materials, if they're in, we won't be able to stop them, is the reality. So, you know, the precautionary principle is one thing that has always animated Uh, legislation, the production of legislation in Europe, and I think we need to cling to the precautionary principle very, very closely here. Ireland has very much, I feel, a green, clean image to other parts of the world. And of late, we do seem to be moving more back to our roots and back to old-fashioned, good, wholesome cooking. And as you say, they're about chemicals and antibiotics and everything that people are more conscious about what they're eating. So the TTIP sounds like it could very much damage that image and maybe send us back into the past again. I would have to agree. Um, I think in, in essence, something like the TTIP is actually inimical to what we have, that is our, if you like, our USP, our unique selling point. The government sells Ireland as, you know, the food island. Uh, Bordbia sells us as the people who are the, the foundation of Origin Green. The reality, however, is that we haven't stepped forward and said we're not going to have genetically modified uh, materials for sale in this country. Scotland has done it recently and has quite unequivocally said we have got to protect our green image. Uh, They've come under a great deal of criticism for doing so from from the usual suspects. We haven't done that. We've kind of dragged our heels. And I would love to see unequivocal statements coming from uh, the government parties to say that actually what is important, not just for Irish agriculture, but in particular for Irish tourism, is that we uh, not only claim this clean green image, but that we make it manifest and we make it a part of our USP when we are selling our food abroad. But we haven't actually done that. You know, we talk a good talk, but we really don't walk the walk. And um, I, I would be somewhat concerned, really, that, that, with, that you know, the government is, isn't really stepping up here and, and voicing its uh, opposition and is really kind of going along with the TTIP concept and not really explaining um, what it's all about. And, you know, the, the startling thing about TTIP is the enormous power it represents, the enormous potential for change it represents and yet the almost complete absence of debate about the subject uh, it tends to be a few uh, people going on and pointing out the pitfalls followed of course very quickly by other people saying well actually these guys don't know what they're talking about we've had trade agreements for years and you know the investor state dispute settlements you know that's there in case you're kind of trying to get regress in russia which is very difficult 
Um, but actually, you know, it's the old story, really. The unforeseen consequences are the things we should be guarding against, but we're a little bit too enthusiastic to not sort of spoil the party. And uh, I, I think we should really spoil the party. Because in the long term, it's going to have detrimental effects on generations to come. Well, yes. I mean, if you, if you make a decision about uh, allowing um, the, the sort of, you know, free movement of genetically modified seeds or... Uh, you, you, you can do that with a, a, with a view to a short-term profit because, after all, GM seeds are patented. They're owned by somebody. So if somebody sells them to you, they stand to make money from that. And, and, and this has been pointed out by a number of people that, uh, in fact, you know, this is kind of, if you like, owning the, the, the seeds that keep us alive. Um, if you make decisions like that, um, just to sound like an old hippie, it's not a bad idea to remember, you know, uh, what the First Nation Americans did which is that they never made a decision for themselves. They didn't even make a decision for their children. They made a decision for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Much as you, if you plant a tree, you don't plant an oak tree for yourself. You plant it for your grandchildren. But, of course, you know, we live in a three-, four-, five-year government cycle. So that kind of long-term thinking has simply vanished uh, from political I- ideologies, which are predicated on you know, staying in power, winning the next election. So there, there seems precious little room for the kind of, um, shall we say, broad-scale thinking that one used to find in uh, national politics. Um, that's not to say it couldn't come back, but, I mean, certainly we, we're a little keen in Ireland, as I say, not to spoil the party and to kind of go along and, to, you know, to be well-behaved. It reminds me of being sort of a 12-year-old boy at, at Mass, you know, back in the 1960s when you were told to kind of sit there, shut up and, uh, and keep your tie straight. Uh, and I, I think we should be a little bit bolshy about it because, you know, I'm in my mid-50s. The consequences of these things uh, are, you know, may not be very te- desperately manifest during my life, but they're certainly going to be very manifest during my children's life. And I think just yesterday there was a very interesting report which said that actually by the end of this century, areas of the Gulf states will be completely uninhabitable for human life. In other words, that if you, as a human being, were to go outside in places like Dubai and Doha for more than a few hours uh, in the day, you would actually die. So, you know, these things have a habit. Here we are talking about the great oil-producing nations of the Middle East, but climate change is actually going to make these places um, hellholes, realistically. Well, you said there about the government that we need them to walk the walk and talk the talk. What can we as consumers do to encourage the government to make the right decision? We have an election coming up. We have to make TTIP an election issue. Uh, I know there are people who are already talking about this and uh, planning to run certainly for, uh, for the Senate uh, as with the TTIP as one of, their, one of their major planks, but it simply has to be brought up. We, we mustn't think that it's something remote and abstruse that doesn't really affect us. Uh, You you know, so much legislation now can seem so far divorced from people's reality. Uh, And so much legislation is the subject of, you know, um, quiet deals in Brussels between negotiators and lobbyists, hundreds upon hundreds and thousands of lobbyists petitioning. Um, You know, we don't have time to do that. I'm I'm busy, Sharon, you're busy, we have families, we have jobs, we have to make a living. But for the big companies, there is unlimited money to pay lobbyists day after day after day to keep at legislators, to keep at their advisors, to sway things in their favor. 
And I think it takes, it will take courage from the government, you know, or from whomsoever forms the government next time around to say, well, actually, this isn't in the, the interests of Ireland, the food island. This is not in the interests of Origin Green. And let's take a decision for our children and our grandchildren that says, you know, we can produce the greatest food in the world. We have the ideal climate. We have an unspoilt uh, countryside. We have wonderful grass. We have healthy animals. We have all we need. Um, TTIP is not going to make any of these things better. It will only make them worse because the industrialized system is rapacious and it's endlessly looking for new markets. So if you think, for example, that the three euro chicken in the supermarket is an abomination, I mean, just wait till there's a chicken in there that costs, you know, a euro and 50 cent, and which has nevertheless been shipped across the Atlantic. Uh, then we'll really realize that we have a problem. But by then it might be too late. A very frightening um, thought altogether, John. Listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it tonight. I think you make a very interesting point there about the election and definitely now whenever somebody lands at my door, I'll be saying to them, what's your position with TTIP? Yep. I mean, I, that that is the one way we can make it a live issue, Sharon. You know, I know people who sort of think they're going to be turning up at your door and it's all going to be water charges or Jerry Adams, this, that or the other. But actually, if you, if we can just get them to think about this and to understand that there is nothing, nothing whatsoever in TTIP for Ireland, then at the very least we could get the argument going, we can get the debate started, and we can say to people, look, you either, you know, have a position on this, put it into uh, action when we're in government, when you're in government or when whoever is in government, and then let, let the debate begin because it's a, it's a very, very important issue indeed. Are there any websites that you can direct people to to inform themselves? Well, you know, the person whom I've taken quite a big lead from uh, on this, really, and he has been writing about it now for a number of years, is, uh, is George Monbiot in The in the Guardian, if you simply Google. Uh, George Monbiot and TTIP, you, you can get his work going back over the last three or four years. Friends of the Earth have obviously uh, also um, created position papers on this as well. So the Friends of the Earth website, you, you know, that would be two... Two areas that I think uh, to go to. Monbi, of course, would be perceived as being uh, a left-wing thinker and has, has very many critics. Um, but I think we need some radical ideology uh, about this because this form of... Um, it's, it's known actually as post-democracy because what happens is that this legislation is created by teams of negotiators. People don't get a chance to vote on it. You know, it's voted through the European Parliament or whatever. It's, it's, it's voted through Congress of the United States, and Congress is essentially dysfunctional. So this is a post-democratic thing. We, we, we seem to have a functioning democracy, but in fact, these key decisions are taken really without very much knowledge on our part and, and almost zero partition, uh, participation on our part. So, you know, let's get the democracy back, And because if we let ourselves live in a post-democratic world, then, you know, we really will... Uh, we, we, we really will live to regret it. John, great to talk to you as always. Thank you, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM.
Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, acclaimed food writer John McKenna explained the intricacies of TTIP and highlighted how important it is that we all familiarise ourselves with the implications of such a partnership. Earlier in the show, resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley talked about Zamora in Cork City and I met master tea blender Jörg Müller when I was out and about. And you can listen to those interviews again when tonight's show in its entirety goes up on the Best Possible Taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com. Time now to move to a cookbook theme of sorts. I recently paid a visit to Hook and Ladder Cookery School in Limerick City. And the reason I was inspired to go there was because I had heard that they have a book club with a difference, namely a cookbook club. So let's have a listen to Chef Keith Puggett, who hosted my visit. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Keith, it's great to be here in the Hook and Ladder Cookery School. You have a whole range of courses on offer and one of them that caught my eye was the Cookery Book course. What exactly is that? Well, it's great to have you here in Hook and Ladder Cookery School. And um, so we have a whole range of classes, but uh, one of my real passions in life, as you can see behind us here, well, not on radio, but if you were here, you'd be able to see a whole load of books on the shelves here. And I love cookery books and I love sharing them with people. So I thought the best way to share them with people was to actually have a cookery book club, just like people have book clubs where they meet and talk about an author and, and talk about the story and the themes of a book. Well, we're going to sit down as a group and go through the book and talk about the philosophy of the chef and the kinds of ingredients he uses or she uses, depending on the, on the author. And then we're actually going to cook two or three recipes from the book and sit down and eat them. So it's just an evening of cookbooks and good food. And um, like I say, it's just for me, it's, it's kind of very selfish for me because I just look like I adore cookbooks and um, I love the idea of sharing them with people. So. It, it is a very unusual type of cookery class to have. So whenever you first put it up there on the schedule, what was the reaction? It, it's, 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 well, people, it's one of those ones where normally we put stuff up on the schedule and people just book. They go, oh, look, tapas, fantastic, I'll do that. Um, but most of the queries have been what actually happens at a cookery book club and so once we've explained to people what it is that you know it's just a little bit of a discussion like any book club but then the real meat of it no pun intended is to sit down and cook or to stand up and cook sorry um, and just to take two or three recipes from the book and go through it as a group and cook them out and then just sit down and eat them and enjoy them um, so like it, it, people it's a concept that doesn't kind of hit you straight away but um, once we've explained it to people, they've got it and they've gone, oh, that's kind of cool. We'll try that out. So There's a bit of the unknown there. Do they know which books you're going to do from one week to the next? Well, or? We're doing it one month at a time. So um, we have the books up. So in October, we're doing a book called Smoke and Pickles by Edward Lee. He's this amazing um, American-Korean chef. Um, based in uh, based in the south of the USA, and his book is like a crossover between southern cooking and Korean cooking. And, but some of the ingredients he uses are just so Irish, you know. Like there's a huge amount of pork in his recipes. There's a huge amount of buttermilk in his recipes, and a lot of this is because of the Irish influence on cooking in the south of, in southern America as well. So, it, you know, um, whilst it might seem a little bit foreign and a little bit out there there's actually quite a lot of Irish influence and a lot of things that we'd be familiar with. So yeah, I, I, I think to a certain extent, um, 
there's a bit of the unknown there, but to a certain extent, there's a lot of the familiar. And it sounds like you're introducing people to different types of cookbooks, not the standard ones that everybody would know about that are promoted regularly, especially here with the fabulous Irish chefs that we have. So it's a good opportunity to actually get to know not only different cuisines, but different cookbook authors. Absolutely. Um, you know, like it would have been so easy just to do Nevin Maguire's book and it's there and I love it. And, you know, he's a real food hero. You know, he's brought Irish cooking to another level and he champions Irish ingredients all the time. And it would be very easy to do that. And I think we possibly would have sold it straight away. And maybe we still will do that. But I just, I, I love the idea of sharing some of these books. Like I said, Edward Lee, Smoke and Pickles is just, it's an amazing book with some beautiful recipes. In November, we're doing um, a book called Tasting by Tom Kime. And again, it's a lot of, Australian and Asian cooking in it but the ingredients are so Irish at the same time like you know so a lot of fish um, and just uh, you know stuff like mackerel and he just does beautiful things with fish and beautiful things with meat and again it's just a chance to share that with someone and show them what's out there in terms of cooking but also using fresh local Irish ingredients. See, it's very interesting that you say there about the use of Irish produce whenever it comes to making Korean dishes, for example. And some people might be put off with that because they think access accessibility to such ingredients is quite difficult. But in most supermarkets and most cities, you have an Asian market, you have an Asian section that you can get the more unusual bits and pieces. Yeah, my favourite part of the week is to go down to the Chinese supermarket on Henry Street and walk in there and every week I go in there I see something that I've never seen before and it wows me and I love the smell of the spices and I, it, the place it's just alive it's really alive and just amazing ingredients but all these things that we think are foreign and yes they are foreign but they're there everything is there so if you pick up a cookbook I guarantee you if you pick up a cookbook virtually it doesn't matter where that cookbook is from the world is so the world is so small now that you know even in Limerick you can go into you can get African ingredients Asian ingredients you know they're all on our doorstep and it's great to try them and what's even better is to get them and combine them with Irish ingredients and use our own local produce but put those little kind of touches on them my favourite one as an example is our tapas night that we do here it's probably my favourite class I love tapas I love Spanish food I love how rustic it is and how real it is but when I do a tapas night, I'm using gobine chorizo. I'm using um, black pudding from Curra Chase. I'm using, you know, so I'm, I'm getting these Spanish dishes, but they're entirely made with Irish produce. And it's just amazing to see how, how, how delicious and versatile Irish produce is and just use it in a different way that we're not, you know, like our mussels from Newquay out in County Clare. Sorry, I'm getting very excited. But our mussels, our chorizo, our black pudding... All these things make amazing dishes, um, but just not cooked in an Irish way. And it's great to see Irish ingredients getting showcased. And it's great to show people about these ingredients and to tell them about them. And they walk out of here going, oh, God, you know, and I, they've come back and gone, I found the gobin chorizo. You know, someone said they found it out in Garrett's. And, you know, or they go into the market and they ask Olivier in the market for his chorizo from Castle Gregory. Like, you know, and it's just this you know, discovering Irish ingredients and really realising how good our ingredients are. It's great to share that with people as well, you know. A tapas class sounds like a great class for maybe somebody that's a bit nervous about coming to a cookery class because I'd imagine the skill level for tapas, it's a good one to start off with. Oh yeah, it's great. It's great. It's actually, it's my favourite class. 
and even but probably even the reason it's my favorite class is because it is so simple you know and like we'll do six or seven different tapas and uh, I'll demonstrate them all and we'll just put them out on the table and everyone dips in and tastes them and sees how delicious they are and then everyone goes down and cooks two of them and the two we cook you know they're just so straightforward and so simple but you still learn some really good basic techniques you know if you're going to make the if you're going to make chorizos and chorizo and red wine you still have to learn how to chop an onion and chop some garlic and sweat them off and then you have to learn how to reduce down the red wine nicely and slowly so that it doesn't kind of dissolve away so you're learning good basic techniques but in a very simple way and the end product is just amazing i think that's one of the great elements of going to a, a cookery class is that you don't come away just having learnt how to make the dish you do come away with those additional skills like the knife skills for example yeah it's i i, I like to go into every class I, I i in my own head i have three or four learning outcomes that i want everyone to leave this class with and it might be something as simple as pasting some garlic chopping an onion properly What's and pasting garlic? Just getting garlic and not using a garlic crusher, you know, just getting the edge of a knife and taking three or four cloves of garlic and pasting them down, making them disappear in front of you on the chopping board and scraping them back up. And it sounds, it's the food nerd in me. It's, something I, it's very therapeutic, like crushing garlic. And I give out to people who use garlic presses because I think half the flavor disappears and half the rest of the garlic gets stuck in the garlic press. And it's a nightmare to clean out in the sink. So... Why not just get the edge of a knife, crush the garlic, and enjoy watching the garlic disappear in front of you? And and it sounds it, it sounds a bit weird, but when people do it here, they're just they're amazed by it. They go, oh wow, that's kind of cool. The same way when you show them how to chop an onion, and you know you watch every chef on TV and they show you how to chop an onion, but people still don't ever do that. So here in the class, I get a bit you know dictatorial with them and tell them to do it and they they put they kind of chop it there's this real sense of satisfaction because they made so it's an everyday thing for me i i dice an onion and i i just take that as second nature but they do it here and they achieve it and they're going they walk out of the place really happy you know it's but it is it's just having three or four different learning outcomes with regard to chopping an onion pasting some garlic you know learning how to sweat something or saute something just four very basic techniques and if people walk out of here with that i'm really happy they also learn how to make two or three dishes, but it's actually the basic techniques that enable them to go and cook even more dishes again. So I'm, I, in, in my head, if people walk out with that, and then I'm happy. And I can see it in them as well. They're happy that they've learned this and they feel there's some kind of sense of achievement as well. So. You mentioned two of the books that are part of the cookery book class. What are the other books? How many? Is it a, is it a weekly or a monthly? It's a monthly, it's a monthly event, so... The Tom Kine book is in November and then in December we're doing a Christmas book and before I was ever a chef my favourite Christmas cookery book um, was Nigella oh, I thought you were going to say Delia there <laughs> no, no not Delia not Delia it was Nigella I'm, I, I, I you know I'm a boy <laughs> and uh, but it, it, when I first really got interested in cooking that was I, and when I first cooked a Christmas dinner my mum's a chef as well and when I was first allowed to cook a Christmas dinner before I was a chef I did I used her book and all the recipes have stuck with me since you know the whole brining of a turkey and and so I love that book for Christmas so I'm gonna do some Christmas recipes from that and again it's about sharing those recipes and they hold memories because you know it was the first time my mum let me cook dinner for her at Christmas time so that thing sticks in my head and so I love 
sharing those recipes because that's my memory of them. It's all, you know, yourself, food is all about memories. So half the time in the classes, I, I spent half my time talking about my grandfather and my grandmother and my mother and my family and just talking about different things that they've cooked. And then people start sharing their experiences as well. That's another cool part of it. It's that social side and trying to get people to connect with food and to realize that every time every time you have food there's memories attached to it but it's definitely it's great to share those memories of people and people sharing their memories is even better like and you can see it it really breaks it really breaks down barriers in a class there's 12 people most of them have never met each other before and as soon as one person shares a story of what their grandmother used to do someone else has an even better story and it just it's really great really enjoyable very rewarding side of it do you find that people come in couples like with a friend or you do get a lot of individuals on their own we get a bit of everything to be honest um, we get couples I, I had a pastry night on Tuesday night and I had a one husband and wife team um, I had two friends at it and then the other four people were all just individuals but it's it's one of those things you can just rock up on your own There's it's no very interactive because yeah. yeah exactly you know it's very social there's no um, there's no real barriers between people like you know it's just everyone sits down and if you're there there's a shared interest you want to learn a little bit about food and a little bit about cooking so once there's a shared interest and people have something in common there tends to be no real barriers but yeah you do get people rocking up with friends and it's a great way to spend the night with friends as well you know so but you know everyone and anyone kind of rocks up at different times so it's not very class educational strict it's a lot of fun basically yeah i, I like but it you to, learn at the same yeah time. i like it to be informal i think cooking in its essence is you know in its most social is about being informal and it's i, I like to compare it to like a family sitting down to food that's how it feels to me because i have a group i i stand up at the top of the class and i have a group of people sitting around me and i'm dishing up food to them and I'm showing them how to cook this and so it's a very sharing experience and you know I give them all a fork and they're all dipping into the same you know some people can be a little bit reticent about it because you know no double dipping but <laughs> you know it is that sharing element you know that the all to me the most important thing in the great food cultures are all about sharing it's about putting food in the center of a table and everyone dipping in and everyone belonging to that table and everyone sharing in the food and that's what I try to create at the school and I hope people kind of buy into it and I think they do um, so but yeah it is it's just all about sharing well your passion is very contagious so I can only imagine how people get on whenever they're here that they do really enjoy it and really get into it and thanks a million for talking to no me problem. about it today if people go on to hookandladder.ie they'll get all the details of the courses and um I'm sure you have lots of different courses coming up for Christmas now. That We we'll, have a full list of Christmas yeah, courses. We'll help we'd love to see people here. Help the, the challenged cookery people out there like myself. <laughs> <laughs> Great to talk to you, Keith. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. And that sadly brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks for joining me and thanks to all of tonight's guests. Rachel Keeley, Jörg Muller, John McKenna and Keith Piggott. I'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, thanks again so much for your company and bon appétit. 
you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!